Dames and Dragons. Some have said, hilarious. Some have said, I cried. Some have said, it isn't just the best D&D content I've found, it's some of the best content I've experienced ever. Some have said Corbin is the best part. Well, some have said Fran is the best part. Only you say that, Fran. Some have said, shut up, Corbin! Some have said, this podcast is jam on toast. Some being me, Laika. <laughs> me, Laika, have said. <laughs> me, Laika, this podcast. Some have even dared to say, listen to Dames and Dragons, a D&D actual play podcast on Don't Split the Podcast Network. Welcome to Episode 6 of Beholder, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop RPGs. I'm your host, Lisa Chen. And this month, we continue with more tales from the women who make Dungeons & Dragons. Wizards of the Coast, Shelley Mazenoble, Kate Irwin, and Liz Shu tell us all about how the game and team who make it have evolved over their combined decades of experience. After we chat with these women wizards, we'll hear from Ginny Loveday, a Dungeons & Dragons guild adept who wears many other hats, about what being a leader in the Adventurers League and the D&D communities has meant to her. Shelley Mazenoble co-hosts Dragon Talk, has published several books about Dungeons and & Dragons, and is the brand manager for Avalon Hill, which creates board games like Betrayal at the House on the Hill and Betrayal at Baldur's Gate. All right, so the interviewer becomes the interviewee. Welcome to my <laughs> podcast, Shelley. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. To get us started, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about how you developed an interest in tabletop games, board games, RPGs. I I, I always had an interest in games in general. I grew up playing card games with my mom. She's very, very competitive, and she likes to take credit for teaching my brother and I simple math by playing blackjack with us for money. (laughs) And like we would always have to, you know, we would, I am really good at adding things up to 21 because of that. (laughs) She, um, and also like how to count out coins really quickly because she was always like, pay it up, you lost. Uh, But yeah, so we love card games in my family. We always, my brother and I played a lot of board games together. And, but it wasn't in until I, came to Wizards of the Coast that I developed an interest in RPGs. Never played an RPG before coming to Wizards, but I've been at Wizards a really long time. I was going to say, I did some light internet stalking. Uh Uh-oh. Oh, Oh, no. (laughs) And and saw that you've been at Wizards of the the Coast almost since right after graduating school. You've been there for 20 years. Yeah, it'll be 20 next year. That is really cool. Has your so right now you are the brand manager for Avalon Hill. Has yes. your role has that always been your role or have no, you No, no. Okay. See for in 20 years I've I've had so many different roles here it actually feels like I've been at different companies which I think is why I'm always surprised it's 20 years. And we even mo- moved buildings in the middle of my 20 years so it it like I really do feel like I've been at several different companies. Just the same people are always with and the same plant. I've, I've had like one of these plants since I started at Wizards. That my plant is also almost 20 years old. But I started as the promotions coordinator for Magic. Mm-hmm. And I had zero idea of what Magic was. It was still relatively new. I went and 
I, I didn't, this is, I mean, I probably, I didn't even think I knew how to look things up on the internet 20 years ago, but I went to the Wizards of the Coast Game Center. We used to have this, uh, like a giant arcade in um, Seattle's University District. And a friend of mine and I did a little recon mission because I knew I was coming in for my interview and I just wanted to see like, what is this game all about? And uh, that was the first time I saw Magic being played, which to me was just totally bizarre, like a card game, but it was so much deeper than just like, you know, Blackjack or Gin Rummy. It's like these cards where, you know, you're, you're taking on the role of these fantasy creatures and these cards are attacking one another. And it was just, it was mesmerizing, but also incredibly intimidating. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, I, I at least had some basis when I came in for my interview. And fortunately, uh, I, I got the job here. And it took, it took me a long time to figure out magic. I was never good at it, ever. I, I could barely teach it. And I still feel bad because there's probably, oh, I don't know, hundreds of kids that went to Gen Con in 1999 that were taught incorrectly. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Hope they figured it out eventually. Um, but from there, from working on magic, I eventually moved on to other brands like the MLB showdown. We did a whole line of, of these showdown sports games, NFL and NBA followed, uh, Neopets, Star Wars, Dual Masters, uh, when we released Dual Masters in the U S and then, um, I was on the Dual Masters team for Japan for, for a short bit. Eventually I was moved over to work on our publishing department which is our the novels that that we did for Dungeons and Dragons, and that was my first real brush with D anD D, and I was a little nervous because I, I was on the team with you know the same people that were the TRPG, and I was like, I'm not really sure about those people, and I'm not really sure like, what they do, and I'm pretty sure they wear costumes and they hit each other with swords. That's that's what D anD D is to me, and then they eventually made me play D anD D for the first time. There was a group of of new people, of new players, and a very, very uh, experienced dungeon master who was very, very passionate about D&D. And he helped me create my very first character. And I kind of fell in love with it right away. Just the whole process of creating a character. Like, I wasn't, I didn't really care, like, what equipment she was carrying. I didn't really care, like, you know... I, I like just like the crunchy bits, but I was really excited when we started standing up like her charisma and her dexterity. And I was starting to like make, she was starting to feel like a person to me. And then I got to name her. And then I immediately had this backstory that I just kept building on and building on. And I was super excited about the prospect of meeting the other party members and figuring out how we were all connected. And we all had these, these great stories together and, it, like every time we played, there was like another another tie to another character, and it was like we were just like getting so deep within it. And this was uh, three point five, so it was there was a lot to learn. It wasn't it it still holds a special place in my heart because it was the edition that I learned to play on. But looking at like fifth edition, I'm like, oh, I kind of wish I learned on fifth edition because I think I would have caught on to things a lot quicker. But my first character was Astrid, and she was an elf sorceress. And my the dungeon master handed me this little pink, this little miniature, and she was wearing like these pink robes, and she had this flowing blonde hair. And I was like, "This is it. This this is my game. These are my people." And I just 
it was just such a unique, interesting experience because I had no idea that's what D&D was. We just sat around and we, were, and we were laughing and it was like two hours in a conference room every Wednesday. And these people that I was playing with, I barely knew as coworkers, but they, they became friends because what was happening at the table was kind of seeping into our everyday life. Like, you know, we would see each other in the hall and like always have like a special, hey, like, you know, I know you, I know what you did last Wednesday in our game. And like one, one time our cleric took all this damage from, for my character. He just decided, just stepped in and, and he took it. And I thought, my God, that's an amazing thing to do. That's so awesome. And he actually ended up being the officiant at my wedding. So, Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. Like my dad was still like, I can't believe you didn't get married by a priest, but like, he's a cleric dad. Like it's kind of the same thing. Like, no. <laughs> he took a hit for me. He really cared. He did. You don't know. So yeah, these are, they were just, these people will always hold a very special place in my heart. And that was really, that was it. That was uh, my first, my first foray into D&D. And I haven't, I haven't stopped playing since. I just love it. How would you describe your style of play? Oh, I, well, I always gravitate towards being a magic user and I have tried to break free of that, but I realize why? This is what I like. This is what I know. This is just what makes me happy. So I'm either a sorcerer. Sometimes I'm a wizard. I think once I played a warlock, um, I will try to mix it up a little with my race. I really like playing a tiefling and, but I still like, I still really like elves. I don't know. There's just, you know, you just can't fight it. It is what it is. Uh, I don't feel like I am the best person to talk in like if we're trying to get out of something or try to get information from something, I always feel still a little bit intimidated as a player doing that because I'm like, I don't want to mess it up for the party. What if I'd say the wrong thing? Make my characters just be sort of like antisocial or I, it's even better if they're not that intelligent and nobody wants them to really talk. <laughs> so I like to like stay in the background and um, just, you know, pick up pick up the slack and blow things up when it's my turn to do it. And I also do tend to get really attached to my characters and I don't always let them maybe enter the fray as much as they should. So I have, I always make a conscious decision, like just get them out there, take some damage. Don't worry about it. It's like when you get a new car and you just have to like get that first ding mm -hmm. because it's going to happen. Just get it over with. So I tr I'm trying. I'm trying to break free that. Of was that was a great comparison because I had an immediate emotional reaction <laughs> to that. Right? <laughs> when you're um, not playing D&D &D in the conference room, tell me a little bit about your role now and sort of what the day-to-day -day looks like. So now as a, it's been about oh, two, three years. We're going on three years. I am the uh, brand manager for Avalon Hill, which is our board games and some card games. It's it's actually the most probably the most fun that I've I've had at Wizards in all my not nearly 20 years here because I get to work on so many different products and it's kind of like I do a, I do a little bit of everything. I I usually equate it to the job of a producer for a movie, only I don't get to go to red carpet events typically. But I am like the person who finds the resources where we're at so we can actually create new games. And I actually have to get these, like you look at the Avalon Hill portfolio or you look at you know, like what's happening in board games now and you think, 
you know what, I think this would be a great experience for a gamer. Let's make this type of game. And then I will have to go through a song and dance you know, to get this game approved by everybody who needs to approve the game. And then I have to find the resources, the game designers, the uh, art directors, the oftentimes the illustrators for the interior art. I work really closely with our packaging team and our sales team to make sure that, you know, what type of box is this going to work best with? Does it need to have like, I mean, I spend a lot of time thinking about like, are people going to hang this game up or are they going to stack it up on the shelf? And what's that going to look like in terms of our design? It's just I, I mean, I'm fascinated by this stuff now. And then it's, you know, when the I have to help shepherd the games through their very, very initial early design draft all the way to the very end when it goes off to the printer. So a lot of that is in the play testing that happens in between that. Um, and then, you know, just working really closely with our product engineers on making sure that we're creating a, a quality game that people, you know, are feeling like they're going to get a good value out of and um, oftentimes upsetting the finance department because <laughs> I want to make games that people can afford to play. And, but I also want to make really good quality games because I think that's, that's been a hallmark of what Avalon Hill has stood for since the, the 1950s. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's great fun because I get to work with uh, people who are extremely passionate about the, the games that we're making, I don't have an official team. Like there's not a game designer who is assigned to work on Avalon Hill. But if, when we know like a game like Axis and Allies and Zombies, we know we want to make this game. I worked with a designer, Scott Van Essen, who has worked on Dual Masters and Transformers and uh, Kaijudo and Magic, but he's a huge Axis and Allies fan. And it's just been a dream for him to work on an Axis and Allies game. So every day, you know, I would have conversations with him about access and alleys and zombies. And he was just so enthusiastic. He was so passionate and he was just so energized that last eight months, it was just what propelled me to want to get to work every day. I'm like, what is Scott going to do today? What is he going to come up with today? And then I, we also just completed Betrayal Legacy and uh, I got to work for like a year and a half with Rob Davio, who is one crazy genius that man is like he just he'll just blow your mind every time you talk to him it's absolutely fascinating to get inside the heads of game designers and the things that you learn and the, the things that they come up with and a legacy game is just so crazy and complex and weird anyway and coupling that with betrayal which is just this nuanced story crazy could go off the rails in any second game. And he, that was no small feat, but I have had a really wonderful past 18 months. Thanks to both of those guys, because um, we, they have, they have produced two exceptional board games that I think fans are going to love. I cannot wait for this fall. Wow. That all sounds so much more involved than just like your title makes it sound. <laughs> it's very deceiving. I need a new title. Everything manager. 
before I started playing Dungeons and Dragons, I played a lot of board games. And there's so many board games where it's, it's cool to like play once and you learn all of the rules, but you don't necessarily revisit it. It kind of just gets absorbed into your collection. But one of my favorite games right after Dungeons and Dragons is Betrayal at House on the Hill. Me too. Um, so much fun to play just over and over all the time. So I, I'm wondering, like, so what to you makes a board game like a, a great board game? So it's like, it's very similar to a TRPG for me. Like when I leave a game, when I have stopped playing the game and that game just stays with me and it's one of the things that my friends and I are going to laugh about and talk about and just, you know, want to keep experiencing over and over. Like you said, with Betrayal, you get so much replayability there. And and I love that. That's one of the things that I love about that game. And I've always loved about that game is just, it's super random. I have no idea what's going to happen. It's just, I'm, I might end up being the traitor. I don't know what's going to happen in this haunt. We might survive. We might not. I don't know what our house is going to look like. So anytime I can get elements of that in a game, that to me is really exciting. I also love games like Lords of Waterdeep because, you know, I I never thought of myself as, you know, like a strategic game player. I'm, I'm here just to have fun. Like, I you know, I want to play Telestrations and Pictionary and those types of games. But I am freakishly good at Lords of Waterdeep. My husband has never beaten me, ever. You know, it's, I love the fact that it's also a game for just two people. That's, you know, it's very convenient when the kid goes to bed, we can bust it out. So I, I, I do, I do appreciate having some strategy involved in, uh, you know, but also there's, there's something to be said just about a light, fun party game that you can play in like 45 minutes to an hour, maybe an hour and a half, um, something that's easy to teach your non-gamer friends, something that ha- that has, you know, kind of that appeal. And uh, yeah, and the replayability is also a big one for me. I also love for games like Eternal, I feel like a lot of board games have it, uh, where there's really, really kooky characters yes. that you get to be. Because I play Betrayal like almost like D&D. Yeah, you role play the character. Yep, I love that too. And the story, I like, you know, anything that, that can immerse me in a story is I I love that too because that just immediately takes you there and that's something again that's going to help you help that game just the memories of that just stay with you and you're going to want to keep playing it have you played betrayal at Baldur's gate i own betrayals at betrayal at Baldur's gate um but i haven't had a chance to play it it's actually like right next to my front door so i always see it (laughs) and remind myself i want to play it yeah but all my friends only ever want to play D &D with me Especially with the adventures, but that is. D&D. I know. I just want to like some. Maybe someone will listen to this and have pity on me and play it with me because I really yes. want to break it open. Yes. <laughs> well, it's really it was it lent itself very very well to D and D just because of of all of the story that is part of D and D. So you have actually have like fifty mini campaigns oh. in one game. It's pretty awesome. Oh, I I want to stop this interview and play right now. <laughs> I would be happy to play with you anytime. Next time you're around Seattle, we'll bust it up. Yeah. Uh, so uh, moving on to some of the other things you do over at Wizards of the Coast, uh, tell me about Dragon Talk, how that got started, and how you got involved. Dragon Talk has had so many iterations. Even before I think it had an, a, a, the name Dragon Talk, there was always this podcast, and it was kind of this underground thing. I, actually, I think Bart Carroll was the one that started it, and we used to – go into a very loud conference room and there was probably like 
the door, the sound of doors slamming in the background or toilets flushing or microwaves beeping. And we were just like, we don't know what we're doing, but we're, you know, we're just talking about D&D. I know like Mike Merles was really involved with it. I think Jeremy was on it a lot. And it just kind of grew from there. But it was always this like kind of grassroots type of thing that, you know, we're doing, we want to do. And, and fans are actually responding well to it. They, they don't seem to mind the the fact that it's maybe not as polished as it could be, but they didn't care. And then um, I would jump on there once in a while, interview, like join Trevor. Trevor Kid was one of the hosts, and I think Bart was also one of the hosts for a while. And then Greg Tito started, and he kind of jumped in as a host, and we were all like, oh, he's really good. We <laughs> should make Tito take this over. <laughs> and so, and he wanted to, thankfully. So he ended up taking on most more of the hosting and then actually like knowing how to you know produce things more we actually started hiring um, freelancers to come in and 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 produce produce it and make it actually sound better and then eventually due to a lot of of Greg's hard work and perseverance we actually ended up with with a studio in which we can actually record things and now there's you know two or three people that actually help us engineer the thing. And Greg's really, he's, he's really the mastermind behind it. He has taken point on like 90% of the guests are people that, that he finds in books. Um, He's come up with all the segments like the, the lore you should know and the stage advice segment, which are really popular. And um, yeah, so he deserves all the credit for that, but somehow like Trevor kind of, stopped hosting and Bart kind of stopped hosting and I just kept showing up. So, (laughs) and Greg and I are, we're good friends in real life. So like we, we actually do just enjoy talking to each other. And I think that that definitely helps with when we're talking to guests and I'm just, I'm really interested in the people that we talk to. I just love learning about all the different ways that D and D has touched people and all the different ways that people are using D and D in their, uh, everyday lives like you know or talking to therapists and teachers and librarians who are using it those I just love it I just like hearing about it so I think it's a great way to bring attention to all of these wonderful people that are part of our community have you had a favorite guest or you of course I promise I wasn't I wasn't digging (laughs) okay let me rephrase you mean besides you yeah besides me (laughs) is is there a favorite uh, are there a few favorite things that you've learned from dragon talk guests so I am just always fascinated about hearing how uh, therapists use D&D. And we recently had Dr. Megan Connolly on, and she, she was talking about uh, using D&D to help girls gain empowerment and, and help them you know, feel more confident in their everyday lives. She runs an all-girl group, and just how it's just – hearing how that has actually positive positively affected these young women is just it just makes my heart sing I just I love hearing that and I loved uh hearing about how like Dr. B when he talks about using D&D to help children with autism or uh, to help you know kids with social development struggles and how D&D really helps these kids come alive and it, it just gives them something to to hold on to. It gives them something to relate to. It helps, you know, foster the sense of, of friendship and belonging. And it's just, it's, it's hard for, you know, people outside of the community to, to imagine that a game can have such 
an amazing and powerful impact on people. But we're, we know, cause we're part of that. And, and when, so whenever I get to hear those, those stories, it's just, it makes me really proud of, of the work that we do and, and to be part of, of this really inspiring community. Oh, and it really is. Like I know so many adults where D&D helps them overcome their social anxiety and other things they have going on in their lives. So I also, I love hearing stories about how people are introducing Dungeons and Dragons to children because just imagine how much that must unlock for them yeah. and how much... Uh, better the world would be if everybody played D D. right that's our goal here really let's just get everybody playing but it is it's truly it's incredible um i have a a good friend her son is seven years old and she actually asked me how she can get him to play dungeons and dragons she was like i really want him to play it and i always laugh and, and i tell i joke with tito all the time I'm like your mother would never have said that. I mean, like a lot of mothers 30 years ago were not actively seeking out ways to get their children to play Dungeons and Dragons. But people are really starting to see the benefits of a game like this and the how positively role-playing games can can impact children and kids and young adults and even adults, like you say. But it's it's happening and it's and it's showing up in schools a lot more. And what I also think is really says speaks a lot to the power of the brand is in we're in such a digital age and it's you know lots of people are just attached to their tablets and attached to their phones and even my son like he loves watching youtube videos but when we talk about dnd we t- we bust out the dungeon board game these he still he just it's different it's just like he he never says no to it he just comes alive there's just something about taking on the role of this heroic adventurer of participating in this story of seeing these monsters come to life that still just continues to spark imagination. And we're still seeing that thankfully with, you know, seven, eight, nine year old kids. They, I want, you know, on the, on dragon talk, we always ask people what their origin story is, how they got involved in D and D. And many of them will say, I was in a bookstore and I saw the cover of the monster manual and it was just from then on, it was true love. That's just something that they saw it. It sparked something in them and they've never looked back. We're, we still see that. We still see that with kids these days. So 30 years from now, when you ask some of these kids their origin story for D&D, they'll probably say something similar. I, I saw the book. I saw the, the cover of something. I saw a piece of artwork. You know, or I saw my friends playing it or my older cousin playing it and I heard their stories and I just wanted to be a part of it. Yeah, there's so many learning moments, problem solving, social interactions in a game like Dungeons and Dragons or like other tabletop RPGs. Yeah. Um, it's kind of a good transition. I, I wanted to ask you, you've written a couple books, actually, including one called Everything I Need to Know I Learned from Dungeons and Dragons. Yes. And Confessions of a Part-Time Sorceress. Uh, and I loved that you have this fun fact that it's called On Mondays, I'm a Wizard yep. in Japan. That's amazing. Seriously. <laughs> I'm like, oh, why didn't we think of that? That's such a good title. <laughs> 
I I mean, I think that's amazing. And in writing these books, you're very much sort of representing women or at least a woman uh, in Dungeons and Dragons. I'm I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about what that means to you. And while you were writing these, was were you very conscious of that fact? I wrote Confessions first. That book came out actually in 2007. And I was just so overwhelmed by my experience playing D&D and the fact that I had even working for the company that publishes the game still had these antiquated stereotypes of what the game was. And I remember going back and telling my girlfriends, I think you guys would love this. I think you would really love to play it. It's, there's so much of what the game is if that's just innate to, to what women do anyway. We, we're always together. We're always telling stories. We're always supporting each other. We always, anyone was mean to a, one of our girlfriends, we all turn our attention on that bad guy. <laughs> like, we're all going to go after him. Like, this is what D&D is. Come on. <laughs> and they were like, oh, I don't know. Like, they also had the stereotypes. So it just, it inspired me to write an essay that eventually turned into the book. And I really, I was conscious of the fact that, of course, I am not the first woman to discover Dungeons and Dragons. This was uh, a long time coming for me. But there, there were, of course, many, many women who had been playing long before I ever picked up my first 20-sided die. But what I wanted to do was speak to women in a way that really showed that the stereotypes aren't true. That you can, I, I basically made myself into a giant stereotype to kind of mirror that against what D&D really is. Like you can be super feminine and wear heels and paint your nails and like, you know, get, get your eyebrows waxed and watch reality TV and read us like all of these things. And these are actually things that I do enjoy doing too. But you can also really love playing a fantasy role-playing game. And here's why. And it was really, I was trying to get to the heart of, of why the game resonates with so many people and really what the, that friendship aspect is. Because in that book, I write a lot about the, the group of people that I started playing with and how we just became, we were not just this ragtag band of adventurers that were basically assigned a D&D game because we were all working on the team and relatively new. But we became really close friends and allies after that. And, you know, we've, you know, we supported each other at the table and off the table too. And I also really tried to get to the heart of that with my second book, because I can't think of what anything in my childhood that has stayed with me the way D&D has stayed with the, the men and women who grew up playing it. Just such this, this like, I feel like I could research it forever and I just, I just want to find what it is, but it just feels so intangible. It's like you kind of just have to feel it or know it or experience it for yourself. But I don't, do you know what it is? When did you start playing? I know we've asked you this on the podcast, but I'm an old lady and I can't remember. I only started playing, gosh, now I guess it's almost three years ago. I started watching Critical Role and they looked like they were having so much fun um, that it gave me the confidence to just walk into my friendly local game store and just start playing. And 
I loved it so much right away. Uh, and I was also taking a year off from working. Um, so I, I signed up for every game that they had the whole week. That's awesome. And like two online games. And I was basically playing Dungeons and Dragons full time. But I think it's like when you're in the game, it's different from a video game because you're actually sitting there with people and you're not restrained by built-in algorithms or rules. Right. If the dungeon master wants to change a rule, they can and, and you can do anything that you imagine. Anything can happen. Like I know you're sort of sitting around the table making up stories, but it's like your brain thinks it's real. Mm-hmm. Like you see like your friend in danger and your brain is going through while you're waiting for your turn, like all the options of how you can actually help this person. Right. Um, yeah. And so I feel like it's, yeah, I don't know. It, it doesn't feel like it's just a game. It feels like something different, something special. Yeah, it is. It's a, there's a lot of, of emotions that, that get pulled into it. And that's really powerful for a kid, you know, mm-hmm. to, to experience that which maybe lends itself to why they they have such a strong connection to the game later. It, whether or not they're still playing it, I've never talked to, to somebody who played D&D as a child that doesn't immediately go back to that place when I tell them, like, oh, yeah, I work on Dungeons & Dragons. They're like, D&D. You can just see it. It's, you can see it in their eyes. They're back there. They're in somebody's basement. They're making up rules. They're their they're first character once again. They're with that same group of friends. And it's just, it's just something that's always fascinated me about it because there's not that many things I can think of that give people such a strong visceral connection. Maybe that's my next book. Maybe I'll just keep researching it. (laughs) Ooh, yeah. (laughs) I'd love to read that. Somebody should. If people want to find you on the interwebs, see what you're up to, how can they do that? You can find me on on Twitter. I'm at Shelly Moo. You can find me on Facebook. I have uh, a page for my writing and also just random things that I will post up there, like (laughs) things I stole off of Greg Tito's desk, you know, or uh, stories about about my my child and things like that. So uh, that's the Shelly Mazenoble writer Facebook page. Go there. Or you can read my blog, ShellyMazenoble.com. Kate Irwin is a senior art director at Dungeons & Dragons, which means she's the one checking and double-checking all those subtle details that make up the different types of dragons of D&D. In addition to telling us more about what it means to be an art director, Kate shares her insights into how the spirit and organization of the D&D team has evolved with each edition. Hi, Kate. Welcome to Behold Her Podcast. Why, thank you, Lisa. It's good to hear you. To start us off, tell me a bit about your role. What is the day-to-day of an art director for D&D? I'm responsible for the art that is inside the books, the TRPGs. I'm also responsible for the licensing that we do. So um, when we have a company that wants to do a brand of jewelry for us or housewares or um, t-shirts, of course, everybody's seen t-shirts, all of that stuff comes through me too. So I spend part of my time working on commissioning art, part of my time working on layout and design for the books, and uh, part of my time working with outside companies, trying to make sure that their work is appropriately D&D. What sort of challenges do you face if someone comes to you with a t-shirt design? What rules or principles would you say guide your art direction for them? 
oftentimes with a t-shirt design, they'll start with a piece of art or graphic that we've provided for them. In those cases, just making sure that they are using them correctly. But if they're making their own graphic, part of what I'm looking at, if perhaps there's a dragon on it, which is pretty common, that it looks like our dragons because you know, each color of a D&D dragon has a specific look. Their wings are attached in a certain way. They have horns that look a certain way. So, yeah, making sure that the the monsters or the races and classes, if they're if they're doing humans or humanoids, that those things are are correct for our brand. And then also we we stop to think, well, do we think that that's something that that there's a need for that people would really be attracted to. And sometimes there are things that I'm like, I think that's kind of weird, but somebody in, else in the office will be like, no, no, you have to. That's so great. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> somebody does like it. Somebody likes it a lot. So we go forward. First of all, I'm hearing that you're basically a dragon expert. <laughs> um, yeah, by now I, I'm close. I'm not... I'm not a Todd Lockwood, but that's really cool. So what's the weirdest, craziest thing you've had to get art for? Gosh. I mean, uh, D&D monsters are pretty crazy, but I would say that the the craziest time that I've had here working on D&D was when we were making the, the fifth edition core books. At that point, we were redesigning the look of the books, but we were also commissioning all of the art so there it was uh, Dan Jellen and I were the two art directors commissioning and we did a thousand pieces of art in three months and normally normally we do about half that in a year so um, it was super intensive and we had a ton of wonderful artists that we were working with at the time but it it was (laughs) a little bit of a meat grinder but we had to really trust the people we were working with and and the entire R&D department and Dan and I would, would get together every morning and look at all of the art that had come in and make our comments on it. And then Dan and I would spend the rest of the day giving that feedback back to the artists. Yeah, it was, it was a lot. It was a lot of work, um, but it was super gratifying when we were done. <laughs> Whoa, that really does sound like a meat grinder. <laughs> so pulling the curtain back a little bit, is there a 5e monster that almost looked completely and wildly different than it actually does now? Nothing is coming to mind right now, but I'm sure I'm sure that that has happened. I just can't think of a specific monster. Part of the reason that I choose the artists that I choose are because I know that they can take direction really well, but they also bring something of themselves to each image that they do. So, you know, I don't I don't want somebody who who can just regurgitate back exactly what's in the art order. Like they they often bring storytelling to the piece that I never expected in the first place. The only example I can think of right now is for an upcoming book and so I probably shouldn't say oh, it. <laughs> um, so yeah, I know. I'm so sorry. Put the curtain back. Put the curtain back. <laughs> I know the, the curtain. The curtain. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> Getting back to your role as art director, what would you say are the most challenging parts of your job? The most challenging part is just juggling everything. Um, I have to change gears a lot. 
because I'm working with different teams. I've also worked on the video games with the digital teams too. And, and I'm kind of, I'm one of the, the resources for the other teams. So I can think that I'm going to spend my day working on interior design work, but instead I end up emailing with licensors and talking to people on other teams about pulling resources for them, pulling references for them, things like that, that um, sometimes I get derailed a little bit. So uh, keeping keeping on top of everything is probably the biggest challenge, but it's always fun stuff. So it's got that going for it. What would you say is the best part of being an art director at D&D? Oh gosh, working with the people. And I know I just said that that's kind of part of why my my job is challenging sometimes, but I love our team so much. Everybody is super supportive. They're excited to be here, always trying to make the product better. So sometimes somebody will come to me and say, you know, we should really change this or move this around. And, and I'm like, oh no. And then I'm like, well, but that's really, that's really cool actually. So, okay, let's do it. They're just really awesome people and the artists that I get to work with too. It's like I get to work with people all around the world. They're so warm and open and collaborative and it just, it inspires me to want to be more of the same too. Before you joined the team, did you have any preconceived notions of what exactly Dungeons and Dragons was? Oh, sure. I grew up in the 80s and I was in um, the college prep classes. And so all the boys in our class played D&D. I didn't know any girls who played it except for my cousin. And she and I, we would pretend that we were playing, but really we were just drawing characters. I probably had more of a negative uh, feeling for it, though, than it deserved just because just because of the people that I knew who played it. But then I found out later that there were other people that I knew who played it that I didn't know that they played it. So I think the people who were vocal about it, maybe when I was in high school, were not the funnest people. So I thought, that's that can't be a fun <laughs> game. Like, they were really gronky people. And so I thought it was a really gronky game instead of it being, like, more of the theatrical part of it, which is what I, I really like. I didn't know where to look for other people either. It was just what was right in front of me. And so I was like, no, I'm going to go buy shoes instead. <laughs> so how did your thoughts about D&D change after you joined the team? And did they make you play? <laughs> they didn't make me play, but I did play. Before I started on D&D, I was working on our novels, um, which is part of the D&D thing, but, uh, but I was working on the children's novels called Mirrorstone. So we did uh, practical guides to, to dragons. That and... makes sense as you are, I'm now calling the resident dragon expert. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Although Richard Witters, man, he's got some skills too. He can actually draw the dragon. So he's got that going <laughs> for him. Uh, so I worked in the children's books, and uh, some of my friends were playing D&D, and it was an all-girl group, and they were they were all kind of new to the game, too. So somebody had to step out, and they asked me if I wanted to join, and I was like, yes, of course, I'd love to. So they kind of took this baby player and, and helped it make sense to me. Yeah, we were an all-girl group. Eventually, we our DM was male, and eventually... Uh, Another friend who was male joined our group too, but it was a really 
great way to learn how to play. Uh, do you remember your first character? Yes, her name <laughs> her name was Killip. She was a she is she's still out there somewhere. She is an Eladrin uh, elf, and her cousin is is actually my friend Sarah, who is related to me in in an odd way. Her last name was very unique, and it was my mother's maiden name, a slightly different spelling. So I was like, I'm sure we're related. And she found out how we were. So we were cousins. Our characters were cousins. And uh, I was a paladin because they needed a healer. But I didn't want to be all cleric either. So I wanted to fight a little bit too. How would you say D&D has changed over uh, your tenure at the company? So my tenure at the company, I've been here um, 18 years. So it's changed a lot. When I first started at Wizards of the Coast, I was a contractor, graphic design, and it was during the Pokemon years. So there were tons of people that were new in the buildings, and I didn't actually get to sit near the design group. I was down on the first floor near the planners and near the R&D department. I had to walk through R&D to get to the ladies room. And I was one of the only ladies on the floor. So nobody used that ladies room except for me and maybe two other people. So it has changed a ton since then as far as the makeup of of our employees. Now, sometimes I go in the restroom and I have to wait for a stall. (laughs) That's just silly. But yeah, we are on D&D team. Our design group is um, almost all female throughout the company. A lot of the art directors are female. Speaking as a woman and what I can speak to uh, from my personal experience, yes, they're definitely, it's a lot more mixed in that way. But it's also a lot more of a business, I think, than it was when I started 18 years ago. I mean, it was a business. We'd just been bought by Hasbro, but um, it still kind of had a lot more of that independent business sort of feel to it. I, I came from Nordstrom, the department store, which had been has been around for a long, long time. So that was a very corporate kind of feeling um, place. And when I came to, to Wizards of the Coast, it just felt a lot more free and we do what we want. We're making games. Yeah, come on, let's go. And now it's it's a lot more corporate. But the fun thing is when we started fifth edition, um, the D&D team kind of broke off a little bit from the rest of the company. We're still obviously the same company, but we, instead of being compartmentalized with different departments, we are the D&D department. So we have our R&D, our our um, brand uh, marketing people, our art people, everybody is all on the D&D team. And so we can collaborate more. And it, again, has more of that, yeah, let's put out a game. We can do it. Let's do it um, kind of feel to it. So that's that's exciting because we have the, the umbrella of the company around us, but then we also have that kind of can-do uh, attitude within our department. Ooh, as just a fan, that's really fascinating to hear, especially... I mean, I joined at fifth edition, so I don't have past editions to compare it to. But I do hear a lot about how fifth has really blossomed and brought in so many new people. And I wonder if like that zeitgeist carries from the attitude of the team. I I think that that's really likely. I felt like in the past, because we were separate departments and there were so many more of us, we're also, also a much smaller team now. Um, so... 
uh, there aren't as many as many ways to miscommunicate, I guess. But in the past, when we were when we were having growing pains, um, I would say it was kind of like one department would just do their part of the job and then kind of throw it over the wall to the next department, and then the next department would get it and go, okay what do I do with this? And, you know, you would go and you would talk to the person, but each person has something they want to get from the conversation. And now that we're all in one department, yeah, we each want to get something from the, from the conversation, but it's most likely kind of the same thing instead of being what your, your VP wants or what your manager wants. It's like, well, we all have the same manager, so we should all have the same goals, right? A lot more cohesive. Mm-hmm. So you touched on this already a little bit, but in case you had anything else you wanted to add, any thoughts to share on being a woman in this field? And also, do you have any insights to share with other women who might want to break into art, art direction, uh, working for tabletop RPGs? Oh, sure. I would say that working for... Working on the D&D team as a woman is a pretty awesome place to be. Everybody on the team is really collaborative, and um, sometimes we uh, disagree with each other, but there is definitely a high level of respect for every person on the team. One of our people used to say we're all in uh, single points of failure, meaning that if, if something happens to one of us, a part of the machine stops working because there isn't a depth of resources to to back up that individual person. And so we all know that we're all key and super important to the the project. And we know that about ourselves, so we feel good about ourselves, but we also know that about every other person on the team, so we feel really good about them and how they contribute to making everything successful. So it's great being on the team and the things that that you might expect in a gaming company to come at you being a woman, it, it's not happening here. I think there's an idea out there that there aren't a lot of women artists, and I think that that's false. I think you have to find the women artists um, that are appropriate for the work that you do, but I feel like they're out there. I think, though, that that, that idea idea that there aren't women artists sometimes cause women who want to be artists to say, oh, I'll do this instead, or kind of lose faith that they can do it. And so I would really encourage them to to keep at it, to work hard, to be professional, to seek out information. School is great. Maybe it's not right for everybody, but, you know, there are other resources um, to gain information. I love the internet age because even though there's a lot of misinformation out there, there are some really wonderful groups drawn and drafted. They have a section called Dear Art Director that you can ask questions to art directors about getting into the, the business, but there are also tons of questions that have already been asked. Um, so you can find answers to probably some of the questions that you may feel are holding you back. But Overall, I would just say go for it. There, There's work out there. You just have to put yourself in the right position to get it. So to be an art director, you usually either have to have um, a background in graphic design or art, one of those two. So build up your skills. Do, do the things that you 
enjoy doing. Don't try to force yourself into a different aesthetic than, than what you really would want to be because it would be really awful to work that hard and then get a job that is not the job that you want. <laughs> I guess to stay true to yourself and um, as long as that is what you really want to do, I think that you can find a, a niche for yourself. Hey everyone, we're here to tell you about the Venture Maidens podcast. Four lifelong gamers. Four longtime friends doing a real play 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons podcast. Including such themes as... Ooh, awkward. NPC romance. Darts to the butt. Chopping things with axes. Find us on iTunes, Spreaker, Twitter, Facebook, or Twitch. New episodes every other Sunday. Or every other Wednesday on Twitch. Check out our website, www.theventuremaidens.com. And start the quest today. Until then, venture away. Liz Shu is the head of publishing and licensing at D&D and has watched the game and its style of play change since 3rd edition. She keeps her finger on the pulse of what the D&D community loves and wants to see next. I am here chatting with Liz Shu from Dungeons & Dragons, Wizards of the Coast. Hi, Liz. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Hi, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Um, so you are currently the head of publishing and licensing at D&D. Uh, but before all of that, uh, how are you introduced to the world of gaming? Wow. Well, I grew up in what a lot of people think of as kind of the heyday of Dungeons and Dragons in the 80s. Um, but for me, being a, a, I was a girl in middle school, I, a lot of the boys that I knew played Dungeons and Dragons, but I didn't know any girls who played. So I didn't play. I was aware of the game. I knew a lot of people who played, but um, it, it just wasn't something that I felt invited into. So after that, we fast forward to my professional career. Uh, I worked for a marketing consultant who had a background in sci-fi and fantasy art, and we ended up uh, working for Wizards of the Coast uh, in a consulting capacity. Uh, this was in 1995, so Wizards was a very new company uh, focused on Magic the Gathering. And through that consulting, I ended up uh, joining the company in August of 1995. So my tenure with Wizards has been uh, long and, uh, and really enjoyable. And that's when I started playing Magic. Uh, and I really didn't play Dungeons & Dragons until after Wizards acquired TSR. I started playing D&D in the third edition era in 2000 and have played ever since. When they acquired the game and your impressions from when you were younger, what did D&D mean to you then? What were your impressions of it? Uh, and then tell me about how that changed when they first got you playing. Well, I think it was kind of a mysterious thing to me since I had never played. I knew that it was a fantasy game and uh, that was really kind of all that I knew. I didn't, I did, I had not been directly exposed to the world of role-playing games before. So the first time I played, it really was kind of this revelation, like, wow, you can actually do anything in this game. You can create a cool character. You can be whoever you want to be. 
and you can do all these fun and exciting things. And it really was a light bulb moment because I realized how powerful this game is, especially for young people who may not actually have the ability to travel the world and, you know, go off and do exciting things because, you know, they're kids. Um, but in Dungeons and Dragons, you can do all those things. And it was really, it was that moment of realizing this is why people love this game so much. So, you know, that that light bulb moment, I think, has really uh, fueled my passion for working on the game all of these years. I've been very proud to be a part of the third edition era, the 3.5 launch, uh, the fourth edition era, and now the fifth edition, uh, which has just been such an amazing explosion of growth for the brand. And I've been able to see over that time an influx of more and more female players, which for me is really gratifying because when I first started working on the brand, it still uh, was a pretty male dominated brand. And I think that that has really changed over the years that I've, that I've been involved with the brand. Yeah, that was actually my next question is how has D&D changed as you've worked on it over the years? I, I tend to think of it more in terms of style of play. You know, a lot of people like to uh, focus on the rules and and talk about how the rules have changed. But but for me, I think it's more evident when you look at styles of play. And you know, thinking about when I first played in third edition, and it was, you know, it was a. Uh, I don't think. In those first games that I was involved in, we weren't using miniatures, but then when the 3-5 rules came out, uh, I definitely remember making that shift to using miniatures. And uh, and that was really fun because, you know, I got uh, to see kind of that, the visual markers on a map and really kind of understand the uh, sort of how everything is oriented versus everything else in the game. Uh, and I enjoyed that that part of play a lot. Uh, which certainly extended through fourth edition. Um, but then for me, when I started playtesting the fifth edition rules, and we really went more in that direction of theater of the mind, and at least certainly in the early games that I played in during the playtest, we said, let's you know put the miniatures away, let's put the maps away, let's really focus on the story and on what's happening. Uh, that was really fun for me because that was, I think, the first time that I had played that style of D&D. And that was eye-opening and um, and just really fun for me. I have since played, you know, fifth edition games that include miniatures and maps, and, and that's really fun too. But I, I think that the um, for me, that evolution of style of play is the thing that really stands out the most. You mentioned that you see like more women getting involved with the game, especially with fifth edition. Do you think that's uh, the nature of that edition and this shift in style of play that you mentioned, or would you would attribute it to something else? I think the shift in style of play is definitely a big part of it. Um, I think that trend in streamed gaming is also a big part of it because we have, uh, you know, if you look at the, stream D&D games that are on Twitch and YouTube and elsewhere, you see a, a great diversity in the players. And I think that that's something that has really encouraged a lot of women to get involved in in the hobby because they see people who look just like them playing D&D. And I think it it really helps dispel that notion that, oh, this is, this is a game for boys. Uh, 
because when you turn on Twitch and you see an amazing group of women playing D&D, it, it really opens that door. Oh, I could do that too. These people look like me. These people look like people I would be friends with. And I really want to try that game. Yeah, I've definitely noticed, especially recently in like the newer seasons, uh, that the D&D Twitch especially is really showcasing really diverse casts in their shows. Yeah, I think that's really fun. And I think that that, uh, I think that that has changed people's view of, of what tabletop gaming in general is, and, and certainly Dungeons and Dragons. And I think that, you know, there's also this trend in an increase in tabletop gaming across the board, because people are seeking that connection. And, you know, what better way to connect with your friends than actually sitting with them and playing a game like Dungeons and Dragons, where you really get to know the people that you play with. I mean, I think that that has been one of the the greatest things for me working on the brand over the years is the different people that I've worked with and gotten to play D&D with, because you really do uh, learn, you know, new things about them as you play together and you start to see trends in what kind of characters do people build. And uh, it, it really, I think, you know, any team who's looking for, you know, regardless of the industry that you work in, any team that is looking for a team building activity should really try Dungeons and Dragons because I think it's a really great team building activity. That's such a good idea. You really do get to learn about people in a totally different way when you play with them. Yeah, that's true. Do any stories come to mind when you think about games you've played uh, while you're at D&D and Wizards where you saw a different side of somebody? Or are there people in the office where everyone is like, oh, yeah, that person's definitely a rogue or definitely a paladin? Yeah, I think that people, you do start to think a little bit about people in those terms when you see them play certain types of characters. But I think one of the interesting gaming groups that I played in, and this was probably a 3.5 game. Uh, I the, the dungeon master for the game was someone who worked for me at the time. And um, it was really interesting to sort of have that role reversal around the table uh, and to have him leading the game and, uh, you know, sort of taking charge of, of what was going to happen and how things were going to go. Because it, I think that it, it actually... Uh, helped us in the way that, that we worked together too, because I got to see a very different side of his personality and, and how he worked and, uh, you know, approached the game from a very workman, workman-like perspective. So tell me a little bit now about what exactly does a head of publishing and licensing do? <laughs> well, I manage a lot of the business aspects of the brand. So it's a great role because I get to be involved at the very front end when we're talking about products that we would like to make. And then I also get to be involved at the back end when I'm really analyzing how those products are doing in the marketplace and are they beha- behaving the way we thought they would? Are they are they delivering on the consumer wants and needs that, that we were trying to meet with the, the products? So the division of publishing and licensing in my role is really, is it something that we are creating and we are manufacturing and we are selling into different channels of distribution? That's our published product. Or are we working with third-party external teams, external businesses um, who are making products on our behalf that carry the D&D 
branding and use the D&D IP and trademarks. Um, but in both cases, it's really about determining what kind of products we want to bring to the market, figuring out how to actually create them and get them to market, uh, and then you know, watching how they're received and, and how they perform. What would you say is the biggest challenge that you come up against um, in, uh, in your day-to-day? Hmm, that's a good one. I, I can think of so many challenging things that I do every day. But I think that the, the biggest challenge for us overall, you know, sort of on a broad scope, it's very important for us to listen to consumers, to have as, you know, clear a sense as we possibly can of, you know, what they're enjoying, uh, what they want that they're not getting. Sometimes that's a challenge because, you can't always listen to the loudest voices in the room because uh, sometimes the loudest voices can have an opinion that might not carry across the broadest group of consumers. So I think it's a challenge for us to really keep our finger on the pulse of what's going on in the community and and what are people going to want to do next because it's it's wonderful and gratifying to see how people are responding to our current products, but we're always thinking, you know, two to three years out. And so, uh, so we have to kind of be projecting into the future based on what we know and see today. And I think that that can be challenging, but it's also a lot of fun. It can be really exciting. What is the weirdest or craziest idea you guys have thrown out there, whether it came to fruition or not? Well, I think one of the craziest things that I took part in, and I, I want to say this happened in 2003, uh, we decided to launch a setting search where we invited our fans to write one page setting proposals for a new D&D setting. And we ended up getting over 11,000 submissions. And to try to give you a visual of what 11,000 one pagers looks like, we actually had, uh, we stacked them all up because we had to print them out because we had to, we had a committee assigned to reading them. And uh, so we printed them out and the stack was, you know, like almost shoulder height for me. I mean, it was really, it was a lot of submissions. And uh, so that was crazy from the standpoint of, we didn't really know how, how it would be received. And we had such a phenomenal response. I think it really was above and beyond what we could have imagined. Uh, and then it was really wonderful because out of that setting search um, project came the Eberron campaign setting for Dungeons and Dragons. And uh, so that was really a, I think a fascinating thing for me to read through the submissions and um, just get a sense of, you know, what do people think, you know, what do people want to see in D&D and, and what are they, you know, what are they most interested in? It was, it was uh, very educational. And then I think more recently, the playtesting that we did for the fifth edition rule set um, was crazy in its size and its scope, because we really did listen to uh, over 100,000 players who gave us their opinions. And, um, and it was, you know, we were very committed to listening to uh, what the player base had to say and integrating as much of it into the development process as we were able. And and I think that it really paid off um, because when we launched the product, we had a lot of people who already were in love with it because they had been 
a part of that playtest. And I don't think anything had ever been done at that scale before in terms of that broad a public playtest for a new rule set for a game as well known as Dungeons and Dragons. That's really cool. So, I mean, for people who are listening to this interview who presumably love Dungeons and Dragons, you're probably one of the people on the team listening most intently to everybody's voices. Yeah, it's something that I think we do very much. We try to do as a team. We do a lot of passing around of, hey, did you see this? Wow, check out this, you know, this tweet or, uh, wow, look at the, the comments that we got on this post on Facebook or check out this video of this cool thing that, you know, someone somewhere is doing. Everybody has their eyes and ears open and we try to share the things that, that you know, stand out the most to us. Um, so it, it very much is a group effort. I also wanted to ask you about your experience as a woman doing this as a career and working in the game industry. So, you know, it's interesting because the gaming culture, you know, is often thought of as very male dominated. Although I've been lucky to have some really amazing female bosses at Wizards of the Coast over the years. And, and I've got uh, so many great female colleagues on the D&D team. You know, my day-to-day experience, I don't get that sense of, oh, it's so male dominated. Because I think, I think we've tried hard to have uh, gender diversity on the team. And I think that we everyone on the team really respects each other and listens to each other. And maybe that's partly a function of the style of game that Dungeons and Dragons is because it's a cooperative game. Maybe we're better at working cooperatively with one another. I don't know. It's sort of a chicken and egg, you know, which came first, the the gaming style and that led to how we run the business or uh, vice versa. But but I think it's uh, it's really been... Uh, a great experience for me career-wise to work with such uh, an amazing team of people who really respect each other, trust each other, uh, and we have each other's backs. As we wind down, was there anything that I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? I mean, I guess I would just go back to, I I think I said this earlier about uh, Dungeons and Dragons is such an amazing way to get to know people. And that's, you know, holds true for personal relationships, but also for work relationships. And I think that, uh, you know, it really is an amazing tool to get to know people and to kind of understand how, how people's, how, how they tick, you know, how they, how they operate. So whether it's for personal reasons or professional reasons, if you can get someone around a D and D gaming table, um, I think you, it's a really great way to deepen relationships. I love that idea. Jenny Loveday is an Adventurers League author and editor, a Dungeon Masters Guild adept, a convention organizer, and co-host of the Roundtable podcast. You might also know her as Calypso, her beloved character elected by the community as the new Chancellor of Flan. D&D has changed my life. Now, that's a phrase that you probably hear pretty commonly. But D&D has changed my life, specifically as a woman, in a great many ways. I've had the very fortunate opportunity to be placed in a position of leadership within the D&D community. And how I came to be in that position and the people that I have 
met throughout this journey are what to me makes D&D such an important part of my life, such a big part of my life. So at an early age, I always knew that I was fascinated with fantasy and things that are larger than life and outside of everyday, day-to-day monotony of life. I grew up reading about dragons. Anne McCaffrey was my favorite author by far. I read every single book of hers in the Pern series, and I got my hands on as many other books as I possibly could. I was a voracious reader. Moving on into school, growing up, I was kind of painfully shy. I always had my nose in a book, the aforementioned fantasy book, most likely. But I was a very good student. I eventually came out of my shyness sometime toward the latter end of high school, but I never really got over my love of fantasy. As I entered into college and traveled away from home, and I didn't really know anyone there, I kind of reached back out to that love of fantasy as the one solid, consistent thing that I had in my life. I met some of my very best friends through my first forays into social fantasy gaming. I played a couple of games of Dungeons and Dragons with random people through college. I picked up Magic of the Gathering and was an avid, if not necessarily skilled player of that hobby. I met several significant others, some of my best friends, and just kind of organically grew from there. Fifth edition came out several years back and changed my life completely. Now that sounds like a bit of an exaggeration, but really, it's kind of what happened. I started with the D&D Next playtest, playing with my boyfriend at the time and some of our friends in the dining room of our apartment, and we were hooked on the game. I loved the high fantasy aspects of it, getting friends together, and just being able to kind of live out the stories that I had always imagined. We eventually started playing the Adventurers League in the local game store, Sci-Fi City, and I met a ton of lovely people there, became fast friends with them very quickly. Now, some people that I had already known for a while, I became closer friends with them, one of those being my good friend, Jay Anderson. Jay had always kind of been a notable figure in the Dungeons and Dragons and role-playing community around the local Knoxville area. He and I eventually realized that Knoxville was lacking a leadership structure through the volunteer program the Adventures League had. So that put me into the uh, coordinator program where I recruited and made many, many great friends throughout the Southeast for various positions with that and started to organize conventions and travel to conventions and just become kind of a fixture in the convention scene, as it were. Um, and, and through that, really, without getting too much into my backstory, 
I kind of learned a lot about myself as a person, uh, who I am, what I mean to people, and how I am able to have an impact on their lives. So I find that I take great joy out of organizing and putting in the labor of love that it takes to bring an event or a convention to life just so that I can see the the joy and the happiness on the faces of all of the players who come and are able to partake of the events that we have running. Um, to have someone come up to me after a show and say that this was the a highlight of their year, that this was the best thing that they've ever done, that they were so glad they came, it, it just brings immeasurable joy to me. And I didn't really realize how much that meant to me as a woman until we started getting into all of the the Me Too and the other, you know, internet phenomena where people were speaking up and I realized that, you know, I had had it bad before and I had definitely dealt with that feeling of not fitting in and not feeling like I belonged as a woman, specifically when I used to travel to magic tournaments and stuff, it was always, oh, oh, are you someone's girlfriend or oh are you their sister or whatever no one took me on my own merit now that's not to point fingers or blame at the magic community because they're growing as well but with D&D and being thrust into such a leadership position I found my confidence I found my ability to shine sure there were people who question my leadership here and there, but more often I found people were eager to seek me out for my opinion, for my thoughts, for a ruling, or just to tell me a story about how D&D changed their life even. And to me, to kind of have that realization that being a nerd and being specifically, you know, a, a RPG tabletop playing nerd, and that it didn't matter to most of these people that I was a tiny petite girl, like that they respected me, that they looked up to me, and that they were my friends, that they want to be my friends, and that we were all in this together, and that it was just D&D that brought us together. And to me, that's kind of what makes the hobby so magical to me. It's not just the magic in the game. It's not just the magic in the stories, but it's the real life magic of being able to feel like I have a place that I belong being able to feel like I have a place where I'm respected and a place where I will continue to make new friendships, to grow relationships, and to just build a vibrant, thriving community. And that's just the magic of D&D for me.
You can keep up with Ginny at Ginny Loveday and at D&D Roundtable on Twitter. Thank you, Ginny, Liz, Kate, and Shelly for sharing your stories on Beholder. If you are a woman or other marginalized voice in the tabletop RPG community, I'd love to share your experiences on Beholder as well. Visit the submission section of BeholdHerPodcast.com to learn how you can contribute. Coming up next on Beholder, we have a back-to-school episode. September is all about D&D and kids. We chat with a psychologist who uses the game to empower girls and hear from an all-girls D&D club in their own words. Prepare to be inspired. See you then.